Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I am Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend, bringing you authors and experts every week to enhance your appreciation of the pets who share your lives. Please give a listen to all my new Pet Talk radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top experts at RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Eight Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Precious Cat Litter, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, Feel Away and Adaptil, and Waruva Pet Foods. Waruva is a privately owned company named after the owner's cats, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. They are dedicated to the highest quality ingredients in their cans and pouches. People could even eat it because it's all made in a human food facility, so everything in there is good enough for us to eat. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend Brands, are great for finicky cats, especially those you're trying to transition away from dry kibble. I have a wonderful show today, more fascinating and interesting people in the world of pets and animals and the human-animal bond. I have Dr. Aubrey Fine from California, who's written a book called Our Faithful Companions, Exploring the Essence of Our Kinship with Animals. But he, I think, is really one of the progenitors of the whole concept of the human-animal bond. Then I have Lisa Brambilla, who has started her own company called BioEarn, that is a different way to celebrate your pet after they cross the Rainbow Bridge. There are some interesting eco-friendly ideas about how how to do that. And then I'm going to jump in on one of my little monologues and talk to you about a lot of things that have been on my mind, ideas about entitlement and elitism, and maybe that I hoisting myself on my own petard a bit and and bringing us all down a peg. So I'm saving the best till last, if you will, which is skewering me. I'm going to jump right in and say hi to Dr. Aubrey Fine. It's wonderful to have you here. It's wonderful to be here. Your book is delightful, but it's really your whole life's work, which is delightful. I mean, this this phrase, the human-animal bond, I've only noticed it bandied about in a general sense, not in an academic sense, for maybe about five years. And it seems to be used more for marketing than the reality of uh, of the serious science and important emotional relationship between people and animals. This is something you've been studying and quantifying and advocating for, I guess one could say, for a very long time, was it a lonely conversation early on? You know, lonely is probably not the right word because, you know, it's funny that as you asked me that question, it's hard to believe that a person that never had an animal as a child became so engaged with um, animals as an adult. And so, you know, the, the reality is we have celebrated relationships with humans and animals for, for centuries, you know, we, we, we see classic paintings in museums with families posing with their companion animals, children with their companion animals. We've watched movies that have brought joy and tears uh, to our eyes. Um, but as a term itself, it was actually first used in the late 1970s. It was actually in Dundee, Scotland at a conference that that word first came up as uh, the word that we use today, but in so many ways, the word was borrowed at first from the the literature that that 
we look at between moms and their infants, that attachment. And so that's where the word bonding came from. Mm -hmm. And and we have many definitions, but to me, it's, it's beyond only this very important mutual relationship. It's, it's really that loving connection that we see between uh, humans and their companion animals. That's very interesting because I was researching a book in the, in the mid seventies that wound up um, selling a million copies because it seemed to catch people's attention at a time when no one was having a lot of these controversial conversations about pregnancy and childbirth, which was the dull name of the book. But the whole issue of maternal infant bonding was just being acknowledged that the idea of taking a human infant away from her mother and or her father at birth was a poor idea that there was this sensitive period during which the baby had her eye, his or her eyes open and, and the whole thing about suckling and, you know, heart to heart and skin to skin. And it changed little by little, or actually pretty dramatically, if you consider the, the length of, of human civilization, pretty dramatically changed the way b- both the research that was done and then a popular book that, that seemed to catch a lot of people's attention really changed the way people perceived what happened between an infant and a mother because in Dundee, Scotland, you know, certainly in the upper classes and in England and the upper classes in the years prior to that, going back centuries, babies and infants and even toddlers and young school children were completely taken away from their parents, right? I mean, they were just raised by others. And and, and the importance of of, of being physically engaged and and to interact with one another is crucial. But I but I think, you know, although the, the terminology had a similar root, um, of course, you know, so many people have been been fascinated with, you know, why are we so in, in, engaged and, and want to be with our animals? And and you know, ever since that 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 initial conference, you know, people have studied, you know, the physiological and the psychological benefits of of being around pets. And, and I think that, you know, we could spend time talking about that and look at that. It not only makes you uh, really feel good emotionally, but there's, you know, biochemical explanation that, you know, uh, being around an animal you love brings down your blood pressure. Uh, it reduces your stress hormones and, and that loving feeling, those sparklies that you have in your eyes in so many ways um, is oxytocin, and we've now been able to demonstrate that yes. that is truthfully there. And, and in our faithful companions, we talk about that. But 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 when you talk to mainstream people, like 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 the people I, I'm hopefully talking to right now, you know, they they say I understand, I may understand all of this, but in reality, I just love my whoever their whatever right. their animal's name is, and, right. and I enjoy being with them. It's like when I come home and my dogs. Who are, who are therapy animals, but if they're at home, when I come in, it's like the Calgary stampede. They're running to the door, <laughs> barking. My cockatoo is screaming. It's not like my wife is running to the door saying, honey, you're home. No, but she's probably they, saying, honey, you forgot to take out the garbage again. Right. Things like that. If yes. she's a normal human wife or, or, right. or house partner. I guess it, what's interesting is that people that are listening to this show all – either live with animals or somebody has chained them to the dashboard of their car and they have no choice but to listen. I kind of doubt that. So they're either really interested in why the rest of us are so interested in our dogs and cats and other companion animals, or we are one of those people ourselves. And there was a time, or there still could be a time, when people might perceive an extreme 
bond, an extreme attachment to an animal as being instead of one with a human and somehow supplanting it, taking the place of it. Oh, that poor person. They only have that with the four-legged because they don't have it with a two-legged. And then you'll find the happily married mother or father with, you know, an aging parent they're close to and children and siblings. And their relationship with their dog is as every bit as intense as the loner living in a cabin in Maine. I'm sure that you must have some explanation for that. Well, well, I do. You know what I mean? Number one, you know what I mean? Uh, over the years, we've recognized that, that, that I think that one needs to have balance in, in, in his or her life. I think it's um, for some people who lack social contact, you know, when you talk about people that are elderly, you know, one of the reasons animals may mean so much to certain populations is because they fill the tremendous void uh, with people that, that are elderly having companion animals. One keeps them wonderful company, but also helps them recognize that they still could be caregivers rather than care receivers. Right. So I'm responsible to mm-hmm. do things. Mm-hmm. Children that I work with as, as a psychologist, you know, I still remember, Years ago, um, as one of my therapeutic um, activities, we, we actually set up a birthday party for one of my therapy dogs. And, and I remember one little boy who came and he came to practice his social skills. He walked over to one of my therapy dogs and said, you know, this is the first time I was invited to a party. Oh, I, 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 thank you for inviting me. So, you know what I mean? These issues... You know, who says that one should only uh, be in love with what I call two-leggers, which is That's you and right. I, That's but you right. can have four-leggers, wingers, sliders yes. that have meaning to your life. And we have to respect that. You know, again, you know, there are people that are so focused on, 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 on their animals, and there may be reasons why those occur, um, partially because maybe animals are much more accepting of our nuances that might be a bit more awkward than than um, than than humans are, but uh, companion animals uh, for some people fill tremendous voids, and for some of us, uh, they they feel uh, just an important part of our life. In, in my case, I can't imagine uh, bringing up my family without the animals that we had to enrich them. And yet, you grew, yourself grew up without them. Now, Correct. your book, Our Faithful Companions while it's for the lay public, also has lots of, lots of you know, uh, clinical scientific references and serious uh, annotations. You're a professor um, in the Department of Education at Cal State Poly and have been since 1981, and you've won all kinds of pretty prestigious awards. Has your work with children been children mostly on the autism spectrum, children that uh, have emotional challenges of some other kind, or is it children that are maladaptive, if that's an okay, politically correct word, in some other way? Most of my work actually is with children that have attention deficit disorder, ADHD, or high-functioning autism. But I work with many children, um, and, and in my own therapy practice, um, I have animals that work alongside me. And, you know, I, I made this serendipitous discovery, Tracy, um, in 1973. And that's really when animal-assisted interventions, uh, the, 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 the grandfather, so to speak, of this field was a gentleman named Boris Levinson, late 60s, started publishing. I was a student um, at that time and didn't really read any of these materials. And how did this all begin for me? And it would be the example of learning disabilities. I never forgot 
I, I ran a program in, in Canada for children with learning disabilities. And in those days, that term could have been a generic term for lots and lots of yes. issues. Yes. And I had a little boy. Uh, I came in that day with my first companion animals. It was a small gerbil, and she was so gentle. And all I wanted to do was share Sasha with a group of youngsters. And there was a little boy that was extremely active. And he looked at me, sort of bouncing on his behind, sitting down, and he said, can I hold her? And I promise you, I won't move. And I looked at him, we talked for a few moments, and then gently placed Sasha in his palm, where he let her wiggle around and sniff his hand and go on his tummy a bit. And he smiled and said to me, you see, I'm not moving. And that was sort of my serendipitous finding. So in some ways, the animals allow me to one, go under the, the, the social radar of children's defense mechanisms yes. and work with them in a very comfortable way. With children with different conditions, I use the animals for a variety of ways, including that social lubricant, that social catalyst to get things started. But sometimes we learn through the lessons of how um, animals behave and how we best can self-regulate. Sometimes we teach them the nonverbal behavior, lots and lots of reasons. But in most cases, my work is with the populations you identify. Which, which is unfortunately for the children and their parents seems to be either a growing population or growing because it's identified more often. I'm talking to Dr. Aubrey Fine, whose book, Our Faithful Companions, Exploring the Essence of Our Kinship with Animals, is both fascinating just because it is and also extra fascinating if you or anybody in your family has emotional issues that, that may be an animal of some kind, it wouldn't have to be a dog or a cat, could ameliorate or help. This organization, Habri, I'm sure you must be very involved with it because you've been involved in the field so long. It seems pretty active on the East Coast. We had the director of Green Chimneys, which is a, a, a live-in, I'm sure you know it well, um, right. home for kids, just the kind of kids that you deal with. And not only is it a farm setting where my own mini donkeys, Mona and Lisa, recently retired to help those kids, but they're also taking, they've started a pilot program of taking dogs from a fairly nearby shelter and they live for six weeks at the school and then go back to be adopted out of the shelter. And, and the children and the dogs have, have all learned something. Habri was an idea that seemed kind of um, fringe almost when I first heard about it. Tell us all a, more, a little bit more about it because I think it, it affects the lives of many, many people, the concepts that are being discovered and, and um, explored. It, ex- it affects all of us in ways that we may not even realize. Right. Uh, Number one, I'm I'm not as familiar with Habri. I know what it is. And really, it's a grouping. uh, I know that several companies, including Zoetis and some of the large uh, pet corporations, put together um, uh, Habri as a uh, group that, that advocates for better awareness for Human Animal Bond Research Institute. That's yes, where the word habit comes right. from. And in essence, um, it, 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 one of the things that it's been doing, at least from the literature standpoint, it has a warehouse where they're trying to identify the literature that's being published so people become more aware of it. As a branch, it's advocating for you know, public policy issues, I think. But, but, but in essence, um, it's, it's, again, fostering the importance that that we need to get in in our um, 
society that animals really do good for us. Celebrating and living lives in our communities amongst animals is tremendous. And when you mentioned Sam and Green Chimneys, I've known Sam for years and have visited Green Chimneys again. And, and in fact, in, in the new book, Our Faithful Companions, we have a little section about Green yes, Chimneys and talk about it. But I think what's really important is, is, is the recognition that therapeutic environments are richer and much more capable of reaching out to people as a consequence of having animals alongside of us working on sort of helping people become more comfortable. In fact, you know, one of the things I talk about sometimes with children that are resistant, they seem less resistant to take part in therapy, but equally less resistant in doing things because the animal's there and they enjoy being with the animal. So for example, maybe a child with more profound autism doesn't like to cut paper or cut things for like an occupational therapist. But if the occupational therapist said, for example, after this relationship was set up, that we're doing this so we can cut some biscuits or some things for uh, the therapy animal, you'd find that the child would be much more willing to comply. So part of it is is that relationship. But you know, I, I've always said for some children, they're they're much more engaged with engaged with certain animals than others. And I think that's an important issue to to recognize. And in my book, Our Faithful Companions, not only do I talk about therapy animals, as you know, I, I talk about regular families that have animals and probably my favorite chapter in that book is is a chapter that's called a uh, magic can you take me to my poo corner and poo corner yes it's a lovely um, one yeah and and it's about um people that have had chronic illnesses magic is uh one of my therapy dogs and ironically we got um magic two days before my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer and so part of the story begins with her and we follow the lives of so many people but the reality, um, I, I spoke with a, a, a palliative care physician at, um, at the National Institute of Health, and I asked her, I said, tell me, you know, why do you think animals are good for people that are chronically ill? And she said simply, you know, people don't need Eeyores in their life. You know, people that, and, they, and when you know Eeyore, Eeyore's the, the bitter donkey. So gl- gloomy and always saw the, right. never saw the silver lining. So they want, they need a good place. So I tweak that to become Pooh Corner. And, and in so many ways that the concept isn't only for people that are ill. You know, if we allow our companion animal to be with us and to share with us their life with ours, you know, we can close our eyes and allow that being to take us to a better place. And, and I think that's what relationships are. Relationships, traditionally human and non-human, are, are enriching and, and help us feel better about who we are and hopefully enjoy being with that other being. So it seems so intuitive and logical and rational and, if you will, obvious. And yet until scientists and, and feet on the ground, boots on the ground, doctors like yourself write this up and prove it and do experiments, if, you know, the, the, uh, the American Humane Association is doing this huge project of, of, Cancer, cancer, the the canines and childhood cancer project to show that children in chemo and their families do better with a ten or fifteen minute visit with a therapy dog during chemo than those who don't. Well, I think everyone listening would go, well, yeah, that's to be. We would assume that ten times over, but I think that things that we who are kind of so over involved or very involved with our pets realize is something that society in general may still be poo pooing. So I think that the work of scientists 
doctors like yourself is really important to prove something which in five years, 10 years, X number of years down the road will be taken as absolute gospel. I'm sure that wives were once seen as simply a convenience, something to breed and to keep the house clean. You could beat a wife. You could mistreat a wife like some sort of a beast of burden. I mean, it took a long time in human society before a wife was seen, and in many societies is still not, as some sort of an equal partner. So uh, the evolution with people and pets is also a kind of a steep learning curve, not an equivalent. If I could add just a point, I won't talk about, I won't comment on your comment, but but I will mention one thing that I think is really relevant. You know, Albert Einstein once said, um, things that need to be counted sometimes can't be counted, and some things that we know can be counted should be counted. And I think the bottom line to this is that we sometimes intuitively feel things and we want science to help us verify yes. that there's a realness to this. But I, I have to say that the, the, the nicest part about writing our faithful companions versus the um, other books that I've written that have been a little bit more science related is that we mix science with very clear anecdotal yes. commentaries of real people. And I still remember one lady that I spoke with and her dog actually won the Westminster dog show. But she said to me, he's my little brown boy, meaning because his color, you know, he was white Aww. and brown. And she said, he was my gift. I, that dog had won every major prize, but the really, the reality is the prize was him to her, just like my animals. They're my greatest gift that, that I enjoy the companionship sharing with them and and sometimes that sharing leads to sadness when you when they pass away or they have illness but if someone would have said to me years ago that you know why are you why do you interact with animals i wouldn't have really truly understood that that tremendous love and devotion that I get from it, just like everyone else does. And, and so, um, I, although science is really important, and, and, and I argue for that, for better scientific understanding, I, I really believe that we need to recognize humanistically the contributions that we share together and that the importance of us making sure that their quality of life is equally as rich. I think it's it's a great lesson for for people that may be sort of shut down or closed off to pets. But I think it's also important for people who both adore their pets and at the same time the last part of what you just said. They they don't under they don't necessarily respect or or meet that that animal's needs. There there's a bit of taking for granted. There's a little bit of carelessness, if you will. Oh, so I think that that's that's a really important thing to bring home for all the animal gives us just by being themselves, and some of them more than others, depending on the depth of their ability to feel and respond and be connected. I think that we do need to all be a lot more respectful of what a dog or a cat's actual natural instinctive needs are and meet them. And they may have nothing to do with what makes us feel good, but at least what we have to give back, right? Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, one of the areas that, that I'm interested in animal assisted therapy now, although I'm interested in how the impact of, of using animals or incorporating animals in a therapeutic environment is valuable to the humans, I, I'm now very, very interested, not only really now, but I've written articles on the ethical um, importance of, of, of safeguarding the welfare of therapy animals. And, and so we need to realize that when, when you see animals doing therapeutic work, 
it's hard for them. It's very demanding emotionally for them. And we need to safeguard their welfare because it's, they're just not tools that we That's use right. randomly. So we have to make sure, like I always giggle, my therapy animals are probably better taken care of than, than most people. They they get walked anywhere from seven to nine times a day. They're on a, a, a very good diet that balances their nutrition. Um, they get rest breaks. They, they have drivers that take them to and fro. So <laughs> we need to recognize this. And, and my dogs look at to me for... Uh, comfort so that they recognize that I never would put them in to difficult situations. And just the last comment with this is that I think one of the reasons dogs make wonderful therapy animals, as many of your listeners would know, is that they read our nonverbal behavior so well. You know, part of the domestication of, of, of canines over the last 10,000 years is that they are probably the best mind readers, the, the, the ability for them to read our nonverbal behavior so that they can interact effectively. And that's why dogs come to you when they see you need um, an emotional boost because they read that social situation. So could you imagine a trained therapy dog that's not only trained with certain other traits, but taking advantage of those skills makes them um, even more effective in their work. Absolutely. Well, I thank you so much for having written this book and for sharing even more thoughts than are in the book itself, our faithful companions. Thank you so much, Dr. Fine. Keep up the good work and any new developments, make sure to let us know. Right. And the listeners can go to my website at aubreyhfine.com to get a link to Alpine Publications or they can get the book at... uh, There'll there'll be a link right with the podcast of the show. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I appreciate it. You take care. And you. After this quick break, we'll be back with Lisa Brambilla and BioEarn. We'll be right back. This show has been supported by Platinum Performance since its first broadcast. Platinum Performance makes comprehensive nutritional supplements which contain nutrients designed to improve overall health at a cellular level, especially joint health and the arthritis that comes with aging. Platinum Performance makes supplements for dogs, cats, horses, and people, too. We are also supported by the pheromone products Feelaway for Cats and Adaptal for Dogs. Pheromones are chemical communicators that are a natural signal of comfort in your pet's brain. Feelaway and Adaptil plug-in diffusers are stress relievers that can help with anxiety or behavior issues and also help adopted pets make the adjustment to their new homes. Veterinarians carry Feelaway, which can reduce problems in a multi-cat household, and they have Adaptil collars, which can help dogs with anxiety from separation, thunderstorms, or travel. I am back with Lisa Brambilla and this most extraordinary biodegradable urn that is a way to memorialize your pets who have passed away. And Lisa, I want to thank you so much because on my Facebook page came this very touching, loving note from you about the loss of my darling Teddy. And then you didn't even know that Scooby-Doo followed him a week later, just saying that, you know, you really understood the pain of losing a pet and that you just felt bad for me. And I thought, well, that's pretty loving. And then I went and looked at your website and my eternal family tree is pretty cool. How did you wind up being the bio urn lady? What what an extraordinary thing to have created. Thanks, Tracy. You know, as as every pet lover knows, the hardest part of, of loving a pet is losing the pet. And and because they don't live as long as we do, you know, most pet lovers will 
over their lifetime have many, many pets in their family and, and as their family. And, and so I found myself uh, having lost a pet recently as, uh, as well, um, coming home from the vet office with yet another small box of her remains. And I looked at my mantle and realized I had no more room on my mantle. <laughs> That's right. The older we get, the more little, little, little jugs of, of, of uh, ashes that are around. Or some of us don't take the ashes because we'd like to, but we don't really know what to do with them. Yeah, that, that's what a lot of veterinarians have told me is that uh, you know when when their their customers uh, have have a pet that has has crossed the rainbow bridge and and they have decided on a cremation as their final step, they ask you know now what do I do? I mean I I can I can go home with my my beloved companion, but then what? And and when I realized that I had no more room on my mantle and I I have six pets in my in my household. Um, my problem was only building. And so I asked my husband, who's a very handy man, if he could make me a bigger mantle. And he said, you know, you're a smart lady. Why don't you figure out a solution to your problem that, that doesn't include making a bigger mantle? Right. And, and that, that is very, that pretty was, funny because, yes, soon you would have a, just an indoor shrine. Pretty much. And and I thought, you know, the last thing I want to be known as is the, the creepy urn hoarding lady. So Yes, right. I, Good point. My sister <laughs> um, cremated her, the half Corgi, half Chuck Russell that I gave her years ago, found him in the arms of some nice young girl at a at a horse show I was at. People have heard me talk about Luca, the, the Trojan puppy. He really was the dog from hell. He was the cutest looking dog. And he was just... He bit people and he would walk all the way across Central Park and hold it till he got on the Persian carpet in her office and then he'd let go. But oh. they adored him. He was quite a quite a funny character. He would pull a little corgi, Jack Russell Mixon, would pull them on their bicycles through Bellport streets. He he was a, a funny monkey. And so they have his remains, they have his ashes, and they, they recently sold their New York apartment and now they've moved the ashes to Connecticut. It's like it's kind of creepy, this box of ashes. So explain how BioEarn works, what it is, because I love the idea that there's a way to take the remains, or in the case of an animal in the dead of winter like Teddy, who I couldn't bury. It is legal in Vermont. It's not so legal other places. Not that many people haven't done it, even though it's not legal. But it, it's quite, you know, a 100-pound dog, you got to have one heck of a big hole. And I didn't take ashes because I didn't know what to do with them. And if I'd understood about BioEarn, I would have. But you... You really could use a bioorn even without the the ashes. You could just use it as a a kind of memorial, couldn't you? Absolutely. What really spoke to me as far as the design for the for the the uh, the urn was the Navajo basket because it, it's handmade and it's it's uh, you know a, a wound basket of corn husks. So I have uh, fashioned the bat, the bioorn after that design, and it's made out of pure cotton cording. And it's just, and it's, it's handmade and hand sewn, each one individually. And, uh, it holds the entirety of a pet's cremated remains along with the soil that we also send in the BioEarn kit. And then the tree seed, which we've got a multitude of trees and flowering, uh, shrubs to choose from. But, you know, considering where you're going to be memorializing your pet, uh, you would just put in your zip code and a drop down would come of all the trees and shrubs that would slide. Oh my goodness, that's smart. You you choose the tree that really speaks to you, and then we encase it in a nutrient rich clay base. So we call that a seed bead. And then you just uh, put your cremains in first. And if you don't want to see the cremated remains, we actually also include a cotton cremains bag. 
and your veterinarian will transfer the cremains directly into the bag. So the bag goes in first, then the soil, then the seed bead, and then you cover it with, with your topsoil and start watering. And, and for folks who are living in an apartment or don't have a yard or thinking they might move, maybe they're a renter, right. you, could also, you could also use a, a, a bio or an, in a decorative planter and either grow it indoors with you or take it with you when you move on. And the idea is just so incredibly simple and pure. I mean, it's just, it, you're burying the cremains. You're burying them, but in a way that also makes a memorial, a flowering memorial at the same time. When you had this idea, your husband who said you were so clever, did he think you were clever or bonkers? Well, you know, he's, he's been married to me for 22 years. So he, <laughs> he knows I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much out of my own tree anyway. And nothing I do surprises him anymore. So when this when this thing started to to, to grow legs and run, because you know everybody I talked to said, "What a brilliant idea! You should yes. you should make a company out of it." And you know, as a cancer survivor, I found myself looking for a job and looking for something to do because I had I had lost my job while going through my cancer treatment because oh I was out for seven months. So I thought, you know what? The best way to be successful is to create your own success. So. I, I created a company around it, which we call my eternal family tree. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I introduced it to the uh, veterinary hospital managers um, first just to get feedback and, 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 and get their ideas on what they think um, veterinarians would think of it and, and, and their customers. And they all embraced it and loved it. Many of the ladies and, and gentlemen who were standing at our, at our booth at the convention, we're crying. And they said, you know, this is really? so long overdue. Yes. I, I, and, you know, was, I know that one of the things that is a real challenge for veterinarians and something that most of us don't think about, although with the loss of Teddy and Scooby, I've, I've done some shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network and had some interviews on this show as well with veterinarians talking about the emotional devotion that it takes for them. Don't even call it a toll, but it takes a lot from them. They've known these people and this dog or cat sometimes for decades, certainly for a very long time. And they're very sad when the animal dies slowly or quickly, too young or very old. And to be able to offer something that has this grace to it, that has this, there's an eternal feeling to it, like a little eternal flame. That little plant will be an eternal flame is, is I, I think, a great comfort because I guess I never thought of it, but the place where the decision is made, do you get personal cremains or do you get, uh, like, uh, group cremains? Or even do you not get cremains but you want to do something at home? Uh, that is, all those decisions are made in the vet's office. I hadn't realized that that's where, and often people are forced to make that decision, you know, when they least can handle it. It, there does, doesn't seem to be a great option at the time. So I think if you knew it was something you could take away and plant and make it into something permanent, th there is a sense of kind of peace about that. I mean, I think the whole idea of burial and cemeteries, it, it's, it goes across all cultures, right? And and okay. all all kinds of humans. And we want to have that that marker or that place to go and think and it's really hard with a pet to come up with, you know, there are a few pet graveyards, but not many cemeteries, and they're not really accessible to most people. And some people, if they've been in a house forever and ever, might have a kind of a little pet cemetery at home, but probably not. And I think that the bioworn just is an amazing solution to a problem that all of us 
have faced and will continue to face. And it's often a kind of an awkward, uncomfortable, geez, this is, you know, I haven't, not an elegant ending, you know, because what do you, you've got a body. What do you do with a body? Or what do you do with a bag of ashes? If you, if you don't go for the deluxe version, they give you a baggie basically, you know, Mm -hmm. in a cardboard box. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty grim. There's no real dignity to it. I like the idea that you can just hand that to the vet and, let them deal with putting it into the nicer cotton bag so it can become part of the tree that grows. I guess you realize that for some people, they're just squeamish about the whole thing. Well, and that's the feedback that we got at the veterinary hospital managers conference. And, and that was, that was the uh, epiphany that, that uh, these, these folks shared with me and, and allowed me to kind of develop my product into something that really meets the needs of not only our customers, but also our veterinarians who are our customers. And, you know, I, I worked for Dr. Jack Stevens uh, for 13 years at Veterinary Pet Insurance, and I got to talk to uh, pet owners across the United States every course, day for 13 years. Yep. And I, under, I really under, deeply understood the human-animal bond, and I also really got to be very keenly aware of the problems that folks face when they've lost a family member, whether it's two-legged or four-legged, but specifically four-legged. And, you know, Jack always said to me, if you're going to develop a product for veterinarians, make sure that it's something that helps them to, to make their job just a little bit easier so that they can embrace it and welcome it into their practice. And I think that at least what I've been told at Western Veterinary Conference and the Veterinary Hospital Managers Conference by so many veterinarians and their staff is that this product really takes a lot of the burden off of everybody's shoulder of thinking about grief and loss and sadness and allows them to think more along the lines of a circle of life and growing a tree. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it just turns a frown upside down a little bit. And, and, you know, if I can do anything in this world and leave my mark, I think that's what I'd really like to be remembered for is, is making a pet parent's life a little easier when they have to suffer a loss. And I guess, you know, another thing is, Lisa, that those of us with aging pets we all reach the point where we know there's like a ticking clock and, and time is limited. And then if the animal should start to have any kind of a physical or mental decline, we begin to be watchful all the time. Is now the day? Is today the day? Is he better? What's the quality of life? And I think that the idea that you could, that one, I assume one can buy a bioern directly from my eternal family tree, right? I mean, it's not only sold to veterinarians. Absolutely. It's actually sold directly on our website at myinternalfamilytree.com. So people could get one and some, I mean, I don't think it's macabre or maudlin, but they would have it already. So they would, you know, already be preparing mentally for the process of both the loss and the grieving, but also having this sentimental memento of, you know, something that you can plant and, and say, this was that animal. This place was where that animal's soul resides or where I'm going to go visit or I'm going to, you know, decorate the tree with Easter eggs at Easter or Christmas balls at Christmas or whatever it may be. It just uh, allows you to realize that there will be a place you can go to. It seems people sometimes want to do that more with an animal than they do with their human family members. Yeah, and, you know, that's the reason that we actually encapsulate the tree seed in the, the uh, clay material because that allows the entire bioworn kit to remain dormant until it's planted. So it's ready when you are. So there's really, you know, no, no you know, cutoff time or, or shelf expiration life on right. it. it. It remains dormant. And so if a family needs 
time to grieve or time to bring other members around for a, a little service if they want, or they want to wait for a better season to plant yes. their tree. Yes. You know, it, it, it's ready when they are. That's really interesting. How did you learn about the, the clay seed bead? Because I've only ever seen it. Lucy Poston's at the Honest Kitchen when she's at conferences, gives away these darling little, uh, you know, eco-friendly bags. And in each one is a little seed bead of parsley. And I planted one once and it was like really nice parsley. I planted it a year later. I'd never seen this little clay encapsulator of seeds before. Was it, is this something that everyone but me knows about or did you have to dig around to discover it? Well, you know, my, my husband is very handy and he is part of uh, product uh, development. And he met a botanist who's on the East Coast who is um, trying to um, encourage people to grow butterfly bushes because of the benefit to the earth oh of, of butterflies. And she created this clay material uh, for, to, to, uh, to promote the growth of butterfly bushes. And so the two of them struck up a conversation. And when she saw our website, you know, she gave him all the information that we would need so that we could actually create the exact same um, components that she uses to create her seed uh, uh, beads, if you will. And so we actually trademarked the seed bead. So every oh single one God. of our seeds. You trademarked that name for it, but she created it or developed it. She developed the concept of it, and we took it one step further and, and trademarked it. And, uh, and and so now the bioern comes with a seed bead. And so can we get uh, a butterfly bush? You can get a butterfly bush. You can wow. get uh, rhododendrons, azaleas. But there are a lot of people who don't have time or don't want to wait for a tree. So yes. we offer flowering shrubs for, for people like me who want immediate gratification and want to see something in six to eight months that's flowering and pretty. Yes, or me that has – I don't know exactly what a butterfly bush looks like, but I love the idea that we should all be planting them because the poor butterflies have no place to, to go and be bushy or whatever it is they need to do because the butterflies and the bees are all disappearing. It sounds like many other creatures can can benefit from this. Of course, if you plant a tree, think of all the birds who could who could uh, could make a nest in it, and so forth and so on. I just think it's a really happy or, or a positive, uplifting way to look at the end of a pet's life. And there just really aren't very many options. I, I once had some kind of stone markers made for the garden, and I wrote a little saying on each one, and they're okay, but they just kind of a stone. I mean, what I never could figure out, okay, I had these stones made, but now what do I do with them? Because there's no animal attached to them. So I'm thinking, you know, for Teddy and Scooby, maybe two, two things inside one container or inside one plot in the ground. Cause one of them is actually buried because he got to, to cross the rainbow bridge at home. He had died. He was just given up living with a broken heart from Teddy, who was so, so sick. And it was the yeah. deepest dead of freezing winter. And I and I I just didn't really understand four hundred and fifty dollars for these personal ashes. And what would I do with them? And I didn't want them on my mantelpiece like you or on my sister's desk like her little dog, Luca. But now I mm -hmm. see that they could have wound up in a bio urn. Uh, container, and that would have been really cool. Lisa, it's it's a wonderful story. Have you done well? I mean, do you feel like the word is getting out and, you're, and this is a, a thriving business? Do we all need to quickly go buy a bioren before you go out of business, or do we help you get to the next stage, or what? Well, you know, it actually has taken off quite, quite well. Uh, I've attended several trade shows, and we're actually going down to San Diego next month to audition for Shark Tank. 
And uh, oh, from what good I am- for you, how does that work? We're all cu- those of us that might ever have imagined inventing something, as opposed to you who actually did. How does Shark Tank work? Well, I'll probably have to let you know after I do it. But uh, from what I understand, you you go down and pitch your product, and uh, you know you give it uh, five minutes of your absolute best elevator pitch, if you will, right. and uh, show them how it works, and 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 tell them how you invented it, and and why you invented it and you know, what problem you're solving with it. And uh, then they either decide to invest in your company or they show you the door and say, thanks for coming. Well, are you, are you actually going to be on camera or does that get decided after an audition? It gets decided after the audition. The audition is basically to, to, to separate, I think, the, 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 uh, the good ideas from the bad ideas. And then once they've made that selection then there's a a filming up in los angeles and so i'll be hopefully going up for that and uh you know if if that all works out then we uh we will hopefully be on in november because they did a shout out uh two months ago looking for veteran owned businesses and my husband is an army veteran so we are a veteran owned business so we did get an email back from them saying make sure that you're here in in uh, in june Well, you know what? I think it's really exciting. And I think you've come up with something which is truly unique. And I don't know, it'd be very cool to win the Shark Tank thing. I think then you get rich and famous or something. But at the very least, you wind up being able to make a whole lot more bioworms and put them in the hands of a lot more people. I I hope that just by word of mouth, you'll grow organically, if you'll excuse the expression. And it'll, it'll just be an idea that I think people remember the name biourn. If people put the word biourn in into their google thing will will it find my eternal family tree yes they it, they have an easier time trying to or finding me if they type in my eternal family tree but you can also find us by typing in bio urn okay good um, so that and- way it, people can get it on both sides but i'll i'll have a link to it with the podcast of the show i think i mean i hate to say that it would make a great gift but i do really mean that so many of us have someone who's suffering with either the grieving of having lost a pet or an old pet who you know the time is coming, I think it would get, be a most loving and, and cherished gift to somebody. It would show that you really understand the depth of their feelings. So well, I know it seems yeah, like a very strange gift, but I do think it would make a marvelous one. That's the feedback that I got from a lot of veterinarians is that uh, a lot of people ask, you know, can I make a donation to a foundation? And and they said, you know, since we offer that zip code drop down. You know, if you've got an aunt in Florida or a cousin in Seattle, Washington, you can choose a tree that's going to thrive in their area without too much problem. Very clever. And, 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 you know, people these days are loving their pets as as much, if not more, than their family members. So a loss of a pet is is truly a deep grieving experience, as you well know. It is. I think having a place to go there and do that grieving and have it turn into something beautiful that maybe lives forever if you remember to water it. It's pretty marvelous. Lisa, great work. Good, good luck down in San Diego. And, and we look forward to try, to seeing you on the Shark Tank in November. Very exciting. You'll keep us apprised that on fa- my Facebook um, page, we'll, we'll let everybody know when to keep an eye out for you in the bio or on TV. Thank you so much. I really day. appreciate it. Lots of good you luck too. to you. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. We have a quick break. When we come back, I have a couple of things I want to talk to you all about. Support for Dog Talk comes from Precious Cat Litter, which is privately owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who is dedicated to creating litters to appeal to pussy cats and protect their health. 
All the precious cat litters are low dust for the health of all members of the household. Touch of the Outdoors is their newest litter made from field grass that provides environmental enrichment for indoor cats and entices them into the litter box with the natural scent of the great outdoors. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. Nordic Naturals uses responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and uses third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness in all their oils. Alrighty, I am back. It's me, Tracy, with a couple of things I want to talk to you about because sometimes so many ideas go flitting by and, and time flies and then I don't have a chance to bring it up. One of them has to do with an evolving attitude I've had. I, I know not that long ago I talked to you about the difference between animal advocates and animal rights people and that there's a lot of indignation and moral uh, anger and finger pointing and and this is a different area. This is the area of how we feed our pets. And it's definitely a highly charged one, very emotional. I, I learned a long time ago that the things that should not be discussed at a dinner party are religion, politics, money. Well, I guess in the Hamptons, money has to be at the center of every conversation, but certainly religion and politics. And don't discuss dog or cat food at the dinner table if you don't want to fight, because everyone has such a strong opinion and says, that'll kill your pet, and that's a terrible idea, but my vet said to do this, and the company said to do that, and who says they're lying, and do you know what's really in there? And there's there's just a great deal of uh, frothing at the mouth and a great deal of fist pounding. This is from people who are, you know, very often not having the most marvelous diets or well-balanced meals themselves or for their children, but they get very exercised about their pets. And I, I've met a number of professionals in the, the veterinary pet world who also are, are big believers in either raw food or uh, completely organic food and start to call all other pet food, more commercial pet food, carcinogenic. It'll kill your pet. It's swill. It's garbage. It's awful. And, you know, I think that there was a time, those of you that saw me talk at the Bay Street Theater back many years ago when I gave a talk on pet food, and I guess it was it was pretty well received. I had a good time doing it, and I was, I was pretty full of moral indignation at the time myself. I had recently done a lot of the research for the Dog Bible and continued to do it, and I was pretty up in arms about the sorts of things that I had been told and understood were, were in commercial pet food. And for the most part, they actually aren't in commercial pet food. Dead dogs and cats aren't in commercial pet food. They definitely aren't. And that was an idea that was bandied around so much people began to believe it. And I think that there's a kind of elitism and an ivory towerism that I want to really remove myself from in the judgmentalism about things like supermarket pet food. I've often said, well, that's something you buy in the stupid market. That's all the food there is sort of corn-based and much lower quality ingredients. Well, most of it is corn-based, which is one of the least, inexpensive, the least expensive ingredients. And a lot of it does have less than great ingredients. But sometimes it's all you can afford. Sometimes you don't have access to any other food, whether it's financially or geographically, or you don't have the time to go to a, a far-off place to find the, the more 
uh, prestigious food or the better quality food. And you certainly aren't in any position in terms of your desire, your time, your money, what have you, to cook for your animal. So I think there there is still a, a kind of a, a strata of pet owner that looks down on anybody who just feeds plain old kibble from a bag. Now, I will say to you that you can't feed dry food from any bag of any kind at any price, bought anywhere at all to a cat. They're obligate carnivores. I'll never change my tune about that. But I will say that where feeding your pets comes in, I think we all have to be a little gentler and a little more generous and a little more polite in talking to and about each other and what our pets are eating. We certainly, I don't think, would say to somebody, I can't believe you're feeding that horrible box craft macaroni and cheese to your human child. It's full of synthetic colors and synthetic flavors and all that extra salt and fake stuff, which it probably is, and yet most of us actually had a whole lot of that growing up. You should only be feeding the Annie's organic or what have you. Well, maybe the person doesn't have two or three times the money to spend on on macaroni and cheese in a box, or they've never heard of it, or they don't even know this argument. I don't think that that you would feel so free to speak so harshly to people about what they're feeding their pets or even what they're feeding their grandma or grandpa that lives with them. So I just really think it's important that we each make choices based on our desires, our pocketbook, our time, our temperament, and what matters to us. Because what matters to us isn't necessarily the right thing or the only thing. Other people have other opinions about what matters to them. And maybe food and nutrition and nutrients and supplementation for themselves and all of their family members, no matter how many legs they have, just doesn't matter that much doesn't make them a bad person, doesn't make them an unloving pet owner, and certainly doesn't make them someone who is worthy of your contempt or your judgmentalism or your finger pointing. So I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, And it's a lesson to myself, believe me. Those of you that have been around me and, and gone out, you know, carrying the placard, you know, much less highly processed food, less carbs, it's all true. But there's also people's reality and the reality economically and in terms of time and desire has to be factored in as well. The same thing goes for routine vaccination and preventive medications versus an all natural way of raising a pet. I'm not even convinced that a 100% holistic, 100% fruits and nuts point of view about veterinary or pet health care is the safest and best. But there are people who espouse those things, who don't think that human children should be vaccinated, don't think that puppies and kittens should be vaccinated. Whether they're right or wrong scientifically, the important thing is that they seem to think they're on a high road and that people who are doing otherwise are on a low road. And I would really beg to differ. There are lots of chemicals and medications that can be used for dogs and cats that both prevent uh, very serious diseases some of them contagious, some of them not, some of them based on parasites, some of them not. And people have to make informed choices. So the best thing we can do for each other is suggest that we learn more and that we go to someplace that's as objective and unbiased as possible. Go to the the highest shelf to find the best information. I mean, obviously, it can be a virtual shelf in this day and age. And make decisions based on information. Don't do them knee-jerk. Don't do them, well, I heard that this thing caused this horrible reaction in a friend's dog, so it must be toxic and I'm avoiding it. Do your own thinking. Do your own research. And that goes for something you hear at the dog park, at the beach, 
or even at your veterinarian's office. And then the last thing is dog training. I've, I've just had a, um, a bit of a wake-up call taking young Miss Maisie to her first dog obedience class. And I had always believed, not having had a really young dog forever and ever, that it was good to go to any dog obedience class, that all good things would come from it. Maybe you wouldn't get the most obedient dog and you wouldn't learn the most, but it would just be a great experience for you and the dog. And you'd have fun and the dog would meet other dogs. Well, I just um, went to a class so horrible, so shocking, so egregious, and the other shell-shocked people in it, which were five or six people with fairly young dogs, like a year or under. And then the class after ours, which was supposedly the more advanced beginner's class, they really didn't know any better. And like so many things, whether you go on a tour of Turkey and you have no idea what that should really feel or smell or be like, whether it's a boat or a a, a bus or the places you should see, you don't know any better. You're kind of being let, almost blindfolded, right, on the journey. Uh, I would just say to trust your instinct. And I was sure that I was not the only person in that training class who was really uncomfortable. The teacher was autocratic and very octung and demonstrated some very harsh and uh, nonsensical things with a dog like here's how you keep a dog from jumping up when they jump up you grab their front feet and you hold on and you hold on and you hold on and don't let go and don't let go and then you thrust them off and shout get off well I, I assure you that there's no way that any proper dog trainer would ever tell you that that's going to teach your dog anything of value um, or your children or other people watching so if you are in a class situation, this would be true even if you're in a swimming class for your children, and you don't feel comfortable, something just feels wrong to you, trust your instincts. I say this also about picking veterinarians and picking other uh, people who help in your pet's life, pet sitters, doggy daycare places. If you have any bad feeling, trust the bad feeling. If you're not comfortable, don't say to yourself, well, what do I know? I'm just learning. Or... Um, it's probably my dog's fault or something. If you aren't comfortable and it doesn't feel right, excuse yourself and don't subject yourself or your dog to any kind of harsh or stupid, and I do mean stupid in the truest sense, stupid, ignorant, senseless and pointless interactions. There's another gal that I met on a hilltop walk in, in uh, Vermont and the trainer at this particular class, she'd gone to a different stupid, um, in ignorant, un untrained trainer insisted that all the dogs have a choke chain only it was the only piece of equipment he'd allow and then he, he had some harsh thing he wanted all of them to do if the dog didn't heal like hang it up by the chain neck and she said to him if you go anywhere near my dog i'll break your fingers you don't have to be that tough but you can feel that tough you can just say excuse me this isn't for me so those are my little thoughts for the day i hope you have a great rest of a weekend and enjoy the lovely weather. We will talk again next week. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we'll be together next week. Bye for now.